Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. So, in March 2019, I published an episode titled, What is 5G? Meaning the generation of wireless technologies that have a slow arguably a painstakingly slow rollout. But since then, there's been a lot of weird misinformation related to what 5G is and what it does and what it can do. And so I figured it would be good to revisit the topic and try to clear some stuff up. There are some myths and misconceptions that we need to address. And some of this is due to questionable marketing decisions from various companies. Some of it has to do with magical thinking, and some of it I can't explain from a psychological standpoint. So let's begin with a rundown of what the G means here. As I mentioned, it it means generation, as in the fifth generation of mobile network technologies that allow for the wireless transmission of information, including voice communications, and these days stuff like internet surfing and all the data you need for all those apps that are on your phone. But it's good to remember that we're talking about families of technologies. 5G isn't like a single unified technological implementation, which kind of already makes it confusing. So the first generation of mobile network technologies was analog, not digital, and it allowed for voice calls, but you couldn't even send text over this network. Uh, The technology also had some pretty big limitations to it, including a lack of a reliable form of security, so it was possible to snoop on calls if you knew what you were doing. There was also a problem with stuff like interference from other radio signals, which ties into another topic, that of setting aside certain bands of radio frequencies for specific uses. We'll touch on that again later. Uh, If you don't do that, if you don't set aside specific bands for specific purposes, then any company could make any device that transmits and receives on any given radio frequency, and then you would quickly enter into a situation where interference would be a big problem. Like, if your emergency services radio signals are on the same channel frequencies as television, that would be terrible. The original cellular technologies were emerging in the late 1970s, but they stuck around until the early 1990s, Really, we wouldn't refer to them as 1G technologies except in retrospect. In around 91, we saw digital technologies take over for analog, and thus we saw the introduction of 2G mobile networks, which allowed for texting. Uh, Technically, you could also do stuff like send pictures, you know, multimedia messaging, but it was a pretty low data throughput, so doing that would take a while. It took a while to upload and then download over these uh, these uh, specifications. There were some incremental improvements of the underlying technologies in the second generation, so sometimes you'll hear about specific implementations being referred to as 2.5G or 2.75G, really meaning a more advanced version of 2G technology, but not transformational enough to necessitate a brand new number. And we saw a couple of different versions of 2G, and they were not compatible with each other. There was more than a couple, but two of them would end up really 
taking hold. And those were GSM and CDMA. So we kind of had a forking path of mobile networking technologies for a while. Uh, Both implementations met the standards for 2G service. In other words, they both were able to do what 2G was specified as doing. Most of the specifications were largely defined with data throughput speeds and the supported services that the technology should be able to uh, handle. But it also illustrated that when we talk in Gs, we don't necessarily mean a unified, you know, monolithic approach. If you had a CDMA phone and you traveled to a place that only had GSM service, like a GSM network, you would discover that your phone just didn't work on those networks and vice versa. If you had a GSM phone and you went to a place that only had CDMA service, you'd be out of luck. Now you could find phones that had chips in them, uh, SIM chips that would make them compatible with both, but they were the exception, not the rule. And they tended to be very expensive. The subsequent generations saw new transmission standards that would allow for larger data transfers per unit of time. Now we typically refer to that as speed, but the speed is Kind of like speed is tricky. You're really talking about the data moving at the same speed. It's just that you could transport larger chunks at a time. So instead of it thinking of it as um, faster, think of it as just more more throughput. Uh, so we often refer to it just as, you know, each generation is faster than previous generations. What we really mean is we don't have to wait as long for stuff to happen. And in 4G, we would see some additional services introduced on top of the ones that were already supported by the earlier generations. Uh, Also, the move to the LTE standard in 4G brought those forking paths of CDMA and GSM kind of back together. It was a a globally agreed upon standard, although not everyone was using the same radio frequency bands. So while technically the standard would be the same from country to country, you could still have a phone not work if you were to travel to a different country, just because if your phone antenna did not support the radio frequencies that were being used by the country's network, you still wouldn't have service. For a while, phones were still, you know, needing the older CDMA and GSM networks for the purposes of voice calls, because originally 4G, uh, mobile carriers didn't have 4G support voice over 4G, It's kind of crazy, but it did come around. So uh, that would ultimately lead to the the potential to phase out GSM and CDMA. And I think there's a general tendency, one that I, I myself had found myself falling into, to go all spinal tap on these kind of things. By that, I mean the movie Spinal Tap. For those who don't know what I mean by this, there's a scene in a mockumentary comedy film called This Is Spinal Tap. It follows a fictional heavy metal band. And in one iconic scene in particular, there's a character named uh, Nigel who is showing off his beloved amplifier, which, as he points out, has dials that go up to 11 rather than the standard 10. And Nigel's point is that these go to 11. It seems to indicate that because the number on the dial is larger than 10, it must therefore be louder than amplifiers that go up to 10. But obviously, you really can just make 10 louder. You can make a louder amplifier and still have 10 be the top number, and you just change the scale because there's no meaningful advantage to having an 11 on a dial because there's no universal standard for what each increment of 
amplifier means from a louder perspective. There's no universal approach to this. You know, you could just put a sticker on an amplifier and change a dial that went from 1 to 10 to 1 to 11. You've just changed the scale a little bit. Well, with tech in general, we tend to have these expectations that with each subsequent generation, with each number of a technology, the most recent number will be more powerful than the previous ones. And it's like engineers have taken the old way of doing things and just made it, you know, more better or something. Like, it's the same technology as before, only now it can do what the old technology did, but faster and with more power. But that is not always the way things work, and particularly with wireless data transmissions, it's not necessarily true. Complicating this is that there are other factors that can affect your data throughput, no matter what G you happen to be using. Stuff like the number of people who are using that particular network spot, or how far away you are from the transmission antenna, or what the signal-to-noise ratio is for that particular network. You know, if there are a lot of people watching, I don't know, 4K streams of The Mandalorian on their phones, which would be weird because, I mean, who needs the 4K resolution at that screen size? But anyway, well, that much traffic is going to be a factor. It's going to start overwhelming the network. Or if you're at the very edge of a service area, that could affect you too. And if both factors are in play, you know, you're at the very edge of a service area and everybody else is watching The Mandalorian in 4K, you might feel like your technology is actually taking a step backward. You might feel like, wow, this is slower than my old phone. Now, don't get me wrong. The differences between one generation of wireless tech and the next can be significant. They can involve new ways to encode and transmit information, but sometimes that means that, at least initially, you might not actually see an improvement when it comes to data throughput. Further, depending on the standard, the number of people on a network can really make a big difference to the quality of service that each person receives. And it also helps to remember that generations are not bordered by hard and fast beginning and ending points. They bleed into each other. Typically, there's a lot of overlap between one generation and the next. I mean, major operators in the United States kept that old 2G network active up until 2020. So there can even be overlap between a current generation and two or three generations of technology that came earlier. And we can have situations where, say, a 3G transmission is you know, faster and more reliable than a 4G, uh, you know, or an LTE transmission. And just as I mentioned before, network congestion can do that, right? As someone who used to go to really big tech conferences, like when those were still a thing, you know, like CES, uh, I would often make it a habit to switch my phone manually over to 3G service because the 4G networks would just be overwhelmed by traffic. Implementations of these technologies can improve over time. So, if you have a late-generation 3G system and handset, and you were to compare that against an early-generation 4G LTE system and phone, the 3G setup might actually have better performance than the LTE version. So the 3G phone on the 3G network might have better performance than the 4G phone on the 4G network, you know, only because the 3G one occurred late in the life cycle when a lot of advances had been made, and the 4G came early in that generation cycle before those improvements were made. And on the surface, it can seem counterintuitive. Again, 4 is bigger than 3, so it should be faster. And ultimately, it got there. But it doesn't mean that it's like that right out of the gate. 
We're seeing some of that with 5G rollout as well, which I'm sure comes as a frustration for some customers. And it doesn't help that there's been some confusion, some of it purposefully promoted, about what does and doesn't qualify as actual 5G. The organization that determines what is 5G is the International Telecommunication Union, or ITU. In 2017, the ITU announced its specs for the technical requirements for 5G radio interfaces. Those specifications were more focused on what the 5G should be able to do, which included stuff like the 5G cell itself, that is, the, the network connection point for devices, like a cell tower kind of thing, and that these should have at least 20 gigabits per second download capacity at minimum. So it should be able to support 20 billion bits per second of downloading at minimum. And it also should be able to support, again at minimum, 10 gigabits per second of upload speed to the network at large from each 5G connection tower. Now that does not mean that if your cellular service provider rolls out a robust 5G network, you would be able to pull down 20 gigabits per second in download speed on your phone. If you could, that would be... I mean, that would be amazing, but no, this spec calls for a user download speed of at least 100 megabits per second and an upload of 50 megabits per second, which is pretty darn close to what you can get with 4G LTE on a good day. And it's also good to remember that depending on conditions, you might not get peak speeds. In fact, it would be pretty rare when you did get the peak performance out of this technology. Anyone who has tested their home internet connection is probably familiar with this because speeds are usually below, and sometimes well below, the advertised peak performance that you'll see from providers. That's why those little asterisks after a claim in an advertisement are so important. Now, the 100 megabits down and 50 megabits up is supposed to be the minimum data throughput for users. So it's not like that that's the peak of 5G service either. A good 5G network and compatible devices could mean faster file downloads, lower latency, better streaming services, all due to this increased throughput. But the 5G technologies can make use of different bands of wireless frequencies, and that's also going to change things up and make stuff more complicated. In other words, not all 5G is equal. There's 5G, and then there's... 5G, if you get what I mean, and I'll explain more in a minute. The standard also called for the support of up to 1 million connected devices per square kilometer of space. So a big part of that is due to the proliferation of the Internet of Things devices that are putting an increasing strain on networks, and arguably that 1 million per square kilometer is actually falling behind as far as the Internet of Things trend is going, but that's another topic. There are a few other specifications for 5G that are important. One is that latency, that is the delay introduced when transmitting and receiving data, should be at 4 milliseconds maximum. LTE, part of the 4G family, has a latency of 20 milliseconds or so. And that's important because, generally speaking, humans aren't really able to detect a delay less than 20 milliseconds. And you can see how this would be important for certain applications, like augmented reality, where you've got some sort of display, it might be mounted in a headset or glasses, or it might just be through your phone or whatever, 
but you need to have digital information overlaying a view of the physical world around you. For your average application, a short delay might not be much of a problem, but we're starting to see some pretty audacious uses of AR, including in amusement park attractions. So reducing latency is an important part of providing a good immersive experience. It doesn't do you any good on a ride, for example, if the information you see in your in your headset is relating back to something that you've already passed, right? It's not relevant anymore. In addition, for ultra-reliable low-latency communications, otherwise known as URLLC, the latency should be just one millisecond, which is pretty darn responsive. There are other components to the 5G specifications from ITU, but for most of us, they're just the technical bits and bobs that makes our stuff go. And I think the average consumer just wants that sweet, fast connection, and they don't really care about things like spectral efficiency, even though that's actually really important for how data will travel on 5G frequencies, and we will come back to it. All right, so I mentioned frequency bands earlier, but what does that mean? Well, we gotta do a quick rundown on radio waves, which we will do right after this quick break. So we tend to talk about radio waves in terms of frequency, which is how many radio wavelengths will pass a given point within a second. And this also links back to the actual wavelength of the radio wave. All radio waves travel at the same speed. They are electromagnetic information, or electromagnetic signals, I should say. So in this case, it's the length of the wave that determines how many of that particular radio wave will pass a given point in a second. If they're all moving at the same speed, the, the length is the only real differentiator that tells us this. So the radio spectrum is a really big one. And as I mentioned earlier, countries set aside specific bands for specific purposes. Generally speaking, the full radio spectrum that we could use for wireless communication spans from 3 hertz to 300 gigahertz. And a hertz is one cycle per second, like one vibration per second. But in the case of radio waves, we think of it as one wavelength per second. So you, you've got a, a physical spot, like a start line, and it takes one full second for a single wavelength to pass that point. That would be a one hertz radio wave. It would also be incredibly long because these things are moving wicked fast. So on the low end of the spectrum that we tend to use for a communication, we have three to 30 hertz. That means you would have three to 30 wavelengths of a radio signal passing a given point in a second, which at three hertz would mean that the wavelength would be about 100,000 kilometers long. This is not easy for us to generate because there's actually a relationship between the length of a radio wave and the length of an antenna that you need to generate it, to transmit that kind of wave. But these extremely low frequencies have a benefit of being able to penetrate water, so it makes them useful for stuff like communicating with submarines. On the far end of the spectrum, on the opposite side, we have 300 gigahertz, meaning 300 billion wavelengths of a radio signal will pass a given point in a second, which means each individual radio wave measures one millimeter long. 
So what happens if you were to keep going down the spectrum? What happens if you kept on making the wavelengths shorter and making the frequencies higher? Well, eventually you cross over into other types of electromagnetic energy, including stuff like visible light when you go far enough. If you keep going, then you hit stuff like X-rays and gamma rays. All right, so... The 5G wireless frequencies fall into a couple of broad groups, and one of those two we can even split into two subgroups. So on the low end of the scale, which is often called the sub-6 gigahertz, we've got the low end at 600 megahertz, that means 600 million wavelengths would pass a given point per second, and all the way up to 6 gigahertz or 6 billion wavelengths past a point in a second. Now keep in mind, that whole range is not exclusive to 5G. Just chunks of that range are in 5G. For example, there's actually a pretty big gap between 2600 MHz and 3500 megahertz. These frequencies represent the low band and mid band ranges of 5G frequencies. Those would be those two subgroups I mentioned earlier, low band being the lower group of frequencies in that chunk and mid band being in the higher band of frequencies in that chunk. But we've got a second chunk, which consists of much higher frequencies, starting at 26 gigahertz and ending in the 50 gigahertz range. And again, 5G does not take up all the frequencies within this range, but chunks of them or, or subsections of them. And this is the high band range of frequencies. So we've got the low band, the mid band, and the high band range of 5G. Now it's that high band frequency range that the marketing divisions of various carrier companies have really focused on because it represents the biggest potential impact on consumers assuming a robust rollout of 5G infrastructure and some special situations. It's in that high band frequencies where we see incredible data throughput. Uh, one of AT&T's tests of its 5G high band technology showed a, a bandwidth of 1.2 gigabits per second. That's a similar speed to what you would find with a fiber optic connection. So wicked fast data transfer speeds. That's incredible, right? You would be able to download videos to your phone in a blink of an eye. If you had a 5G antenna connected to your home router, then you could use 5G to be a substitute for a fiber optic line direct to your home. You could even download those massive PS5 and Xbox Series X games in just a minute or two. But at the lower range of frequencies, you know, the stuff that's in the low to mid band ranges of 5G, those are not as impressive when it comes to data throughput. You wouldn't be able to hit that kind of bandwidth. The speeds you would get at those ranges would be closer to what you see with LTE aka 4G speeds, uh, the low band would be a little faster than 4G. The mid band can be significantly faster, just not nearly as fast as the high band stuff. And let's think about how we use radio waves to send information to kind of understand what's going on here. A radio wave on its own, that is a, just a steady radio frequency, that's not terribly useful if we want to convey any information, right? Like, Imagine you're sitting down to have a conversation with someone like me, and let's just say that I just make a noise like this. Uh, that's not really helpful, right? I mean, some of my critics would say they could barely tell the difference between that and one of my episodes. Words can hurt. 
But anyway, without me modulating that sound, without making the, the phonemes associated with a language, all I'm really able to do with a simple tone like that is to indicate that, you know, I'm here, I'm around, so I'm able to make that tone. But that's really it. So to communicate, I have to take that tone, that signal, and I need to alter it in some way. I could increase the pitch or the frequency. Uh, I might change the volume of it or the amplitude in order to, to stress something. And I can chop up that sound in lots of ways, encoding information that you decode. You hear the sound, your brain interprets the sound, and you make meaning from it, which is really cool. Well, radio waves are kind of similar. We take a radio signal of a particular frequency, that is our carrier signal, and then we have a channel of signals and we change that channel of signals in little ways to have that carry information. So we can change the amplitude, that's what AM radio does, AM stands for amplitude modulation, or we could change the frequency a little bit, that's what FM radio does, that's frequency modulation, and we can encode information onto the radio waves themselves that way. Then an antenna of an appropriately tuned receiver can pick up that radio signal, and with a decoder, it can change the information back into a form that's useful to us, which is pretty nifty. Now, when we get to wireless communications beyond basic radio signals, uh, we are talking about channels here. That carrier signal is really the foundation to transmit information. But with a channel, we're actually talking about a band of frequencies that are in some way around this carrier signal. And the size of that channel uh, would be the bandwidth. That determines how much information that signal can carry, though the encoding process also plays a big part in this, but we don't want to get too deep into encoding. That gets really complicated. So let's use a very simple example. Let's say you've got a carrier signal at 600 megahertz, and the channel frequency is two megahertz. What that means is that you actually have a two megahertz space around 600. So a simple way of doing this would be to say that from 599 to 601 megahertz, that's where the channel sits and 600 is right smack dab in the middle. And it's that, that channel width that gives you your data carrying capacity. Now let's get into that spectral efficiency thing that I mentioned earlier in this episode. It's a good time to sort of explain what that actually means. And first, here's what it doesn't mean. I was very sad to discover that spectral efficiency has nothing to do with how effective ghosts are at haunting someplace. I mean, come on, that's where my mind went. But ghosts aren't real, so I guess that's a strike against that idea in the first place. So spectral efficiency has to do with how much information can fit into a given channel bandwidth. How well can that part of the radio spectrum, that, that channel transmit information? How effective is it in carrying info? Well, spectral efficiency tells us more about how much information we can encode onto a given frequency channel. We typically talk about it in terms of the number of bits per second per hertz. So it's a net data rate per second or bits per second divided by the channel bandwidth in hertz. And Again, we're not talking about a specific radio frequency here, so we wouldn't be saying 600 megahertz. We're talking about how wide is that channel? 
How wide is that bandwidth? And that could be anywhere on the radio frequency. So how big is the range of frequencies within that channel? Wider channels can carry more information. Kind of like if you have a highway that has more lanes, more cars can fit on that span of highway at a single time. So while the base frequency for a 5G connection might be 600 megahertz, the channel width could be anything. Uh, Let's say that it could be like 30 megahertz. Well, that's what we're concerned with, the channel width, the 30 megahertz, not what frequency it's actually transmitted on. That doesn't really matter. Let's take an example to really understand this. I pulled this example, by the way, from techplayon.com. They actually have a really useful rundown on what spectral efficiency is. And in their example, we have the following. We've got a 15 megabits per second raw data rate on a channel bandwidth and the, uh, the channel bandwidth is, uh, is 2 megahertz. Uh, now, that raw data rate is not what a user would actually get to take advantage of for the purposes of doing something like download a file because you have to have a certain amount of the bandwidth reserved for what's called overhead just to you know have things work. So in this case, this particular approach reserves 2 megabits per second as overhead. So really, you only have access to 13 megabits per second. If this sounds familiar to you, you're probably thinking about things like storage space. You'll be told like a hard drive can hold a terabyte of information, but it turns out it's more like 800 gigabytes of information. Same sort of thing. So in this particular example, using the bits per second per hertz, we would say we've got 13 megabits per second, which would be 13 million bits per second. And then we would have to divide that by 2 megahertz or 2 million hertz. That would give us 6.5 bits per second per hertz, which describes the spectral efficiency of this hypothetical signal. Now, remember, we were talking about a channel with a width of 2 megahertz. And I didn't talk about the actual frequency of the signal because that's not important. If the, if the frequency was 2600 megahertz and not 600 megahertz, it would still be the same amount of information being carried on this signal because, again, it's the channel width, that range of frequencies. That's what's important. How wide is that channel? How much capacity are we talking about here to hold data? Not the frequency of the carrier signal. So in the lower group of frequencies for 5G, the channel width is narrower, with most of them being around 40 megahertz wide or or smaller. Uh, There's lots of other stuff that's taking up bands of frequencies around this range. So in other words, you need to have enough channels so that all the different carriers can operate without them interfering with each other. But uh, they can't be too wide because you've got to reserve some of that radio frequency space for other stuff. So by necessity there's a limit to how wide those channels can get, which means there's a limit to how much information they can carry. Uh, When you start getting further up in the frequencies, there's a little more room to work with. So the channels can be more wide or wider at those higher frequencies with channels that are 100 megahertz wide. So they can actually carry more information per second. There's a lot more to it than all of this, but it, it, If you think it's complicated now, it gets really mathy after that. And I'm worried that I would not explain it properly. So rather than make things more confusing, let's leave off with the understanding that the low and mid-band 5G networks, 
uh, will offer modest to good improvements in wireless data speeds, but nothing approaching fiber optic speeds. The high band can hit fiber optic speeds. So that leads you to a question, why wouldn't you just go all in with the high band? Why would you even bother with low band or mid band? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One of them is that the transmission range for those higher frequencies is much shorter than for the low and mid-band frequencies. And we're talking about like a thousand feet or less from the transmission tower, which means you would need high-band 5G antennas everywhere to provide comprehensive coverage. If you didn't, well, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of those super fast speeds at any place within a given region. Like you might only be able to hit it at a specific street corner, but if you go a block in any direction, suddenly that connection just drops. On top of the limited range, the higher frequencies have really poor penetration. So it's hard for them to, to pass through stuff like walls or, you know, foliage. So if you've got a wall between you and a transmitter, or, you know, you're just in a you know, a wooded area inside a park, let's say, in a city, you might not be able to get a very good signal from those high-band transmitters. So you wouldn't be able to take advantage of those, those speeds. The low and mid-band frequencies at 5G, they have better range and they have better penetration. So you don't need as many antennas for low range or low band and mid band frequencies. Uh, and when you have them, you can actually have people still get a signal if they were to be inside, assuming you're not too far away from whatever the closest transmitters are. So the high band 5G transmitters will provide the most incredible jumps in performance, but the availability of the signal will be relatively low. The low band stuff will provide a, a, you know, a modest improvement over 4G speeds, but it could be available pretty much everywhere with just a relatively few number of cell towers compared to the high band stuff. That mid band is kind of in the sweet spot. Uh, your typical data speeds would be greater than what we see with 4G by you know, a, a decent amount, but it wouldn't be as impressive as that high band range where you're getting the you know, gigabit per second speeds. Anyway, based on a lot of the marketing for 5G, you would never know that the speeds they talk about are something you would only experience if you happen to be in a transmitter-dense environment and outdoors to boot. It's the sort of thing you might experience if you are in a, a dense urban setting, you know, a city that has enough people in it to justify the expense of rolling out a, a high-band 5G infrastructure all over the ding-dang-dern place. And if you have a building between you and the closest transmitter, you're not likely to get a good signal. So the reality of 5G is a little less exciting than the marketing materials would necessarily have us believe. Though if you do happen to find yourself in a situation where you've got a clear line of sight on a high-band 5G transmitter, like... Let's say that for some reason they build one that happens to be like a beeline right into your living room. Well, you've got you're going to have blazing fast wireless communication connections in that case if you've got compatible technologies to use with it. That's also why again, five companies are talking about using 5G as a replacement for stuff like fiber connections to homes. Because it's way easier to provide that kind of speed to a home if the home has an antenna, and that's because with very few exceptions, 
homes don't move around very much. So you can establish a line of sight between a home antenna and a transmission antenna, and you can be fairly sure that's not going to change over time. But people with a cell phone, you know, people move around a lot. The jerks. All right, so 5G speeds have the potential to give us access to incredible data transfer speeds under certain circumstances. But otherwise, we'll see a more modest improvement over what we have today. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the conspiracies and misconceptions around 5G. But first, let's take another quick break. When it comes to misinformation, misunderstanding, and misrepresentation, I am not sure I have seen another technology as prone to that kind of stuff as 5G. At least not a legitimate technology. There are a lot of hoaxes out there that could probably give 5G a run for its money, but, you know, that's a, that's a different kettle of fish. Uh, some of this comes down to marketing, and as I've already mentioned, that is a big issue. Companies pushing 5G like it's a fiber optic connection wherever you might be, that's misleading. It's not really accurate given the range and penetration limitations of millimeter wave 5G transmissions, that high band we were talking about. You're just not likely to experience those speeds unless you're in a city and you happen to be outside and you are close to one of those transmitters and you've got a compatible device that runs on the network that happens to be in that area. This is what we would call conditional love. It's really, really conditional. Now, that's not to say that low and mid-range 5G speeds will be bad. They won't be bad. They'll be good. They just won't be as transformational as the advertising would have you think. But there are other complications here. For example, AT&T's 5GE. All right, this one is hard for me to cover without getting snarky about it because it's very hard for me to see how this is anything other than misinformation, but let's cover what actually happened. So back in early 2019, some AT&T customers saw an interesting icon pop up on their phones, and the icon said 5GE, and these were the very same phones that one day earlier were humble 4G phones, LTE phones, and overnight, boom, they go to 5G, which is incredible. How did that happen? Well, it happened by not happening. See, it didn't go 5G because 5GE or 5G evolution is what AT&T calls 4G LTE. Now, granted, it is 4G LTE with the late generation advances, like the 4x4 MIMO and 256 QAM. And no, I'm not going to explain these things because it would take another episode to do it. The important thing to know is that these were advances that were made in how we take advantage of 4G networks, how we encode information to transmit across 4G technology, which allowed for better connectivity and faster data transfer rates. So this is that late stage generational stuff that I alluded to at the beginning of this episode. It's what we were seeing with the 4G networks. And in fact, T-Mobile had rolled out the same sort of technology in its networks three years earlier, and T-Mobile was still calling it 4G because, you know, it was. It was good 4G, 
but it was still 4G. But AT&T was marketing it as 5G-E, and the company understandably became the target of criticism, largely from other carriers, and T-Mobile was chief among them. It took more than a year of pressure, but T-Mobile had turned to the National Advertising Division to protest that AT&T was using 5G as a marketing tool when it wasn't actually using 5G technologies. And T-Mobile's claim was that this amounts to false advertising. So the National Advertising Division told AT&T to knock that stuff off. And after appealing this decision and then being shot down, AT&T agreed to no longer use 5GE in its advertising and marketing in 2020, though the 5GE icon still appears on customers' phones using 4G LTE networks. Uh, That being said, AT&T also has legit 5G handsets and 5G infrastructure in some places. So if you have a phone on AT&T's low or mid-band 5G network and you connect to one of those, it will say 5G, not 5GE, 5G. If you connect to a high-band network, then you get the 5G Plus icon. But even in the old LTE network, you'll see 5GE, even though it's 4G technology. Other companies didn't come out spotless in this whole endeavor either. Verizon caught some major criticism after airing ads that said 5G technology would enable other big breakthroughs, such as in medical treatments for cancer. Now, that is just difficult to back up. The low latency and the high data throughput are helpful in a lot of applications, assuming you can take advantage of mid-band or preferably high-band 5G frequencies. But faster transmission speeds and lower latency don't magically make new technologies just appear. They can facilitate implementations, but they don't make them just happen. So as a comparison, faster computers doesn't immediately mean you're going to get better software, right? You can make a more sophisticated software a possibility by creating faster computers, but it doesn't make it a certainty. Moreover, for facilities like hospitals, in-hospital networks are likely to be robust enough without 5G to give the speeds and low latency that you need for stuff like telesurgery, for example. Now, you could argue that 5G could extend that capability beyond well-funded hospitals, But then you're left with the question of how likely is it that a mobile carrier is going to build out its network into regions that are either outside of dense urban centers or outside of more privileged areas in general? I mean, the networks are going to be built to where the customers are at a density that's high enough to justify the expense. So I don't think it's really likely that we're going to see carriers building out 5G network infrastructure surrounding hospitals to give that, you know, 1,000 feet of coverage in every direction. You know, so you'd have to build multiple antennas around your typical hospital to really cover it. And even then, the the high band stuff's not going to penetrate the walls of the hospital. So there's some limited use here. Then we have the political angle. Uh, The tech-powering 5G comes from all over the place, including China. And one of the big companies that is involved with 5G technology is Huawei. But there are some concerns among some governments in the world that a communications network built atop a Chinese company's technology 
would be vulnerable to backdoor snooping from Chinese government officials. There's a concern uh, that could be genuine or it could be manufactured, depending upon the case, that a technology as critical as a communications infrastructure could be made vulnerable to bad actors from official Chinese sources. And since China has a reputation for doing stuff like encouraging hackers to infiltrate systems in other nations, that concern is understandable. On top of that, however, you also have uh, complicating matters like the trade disputes between China and the United States. You know, in, in recent years, President Trump has taken a pretty hard stance against China, and any chance of China playing a part in building out 5G networks within the United States. Now, whether that is from a genuine concern about national security, or it's more of a part of a bargaining strategy in a trade war, or maybe it's a bit of both, it's kind of hard to say. Honestly, I think that caution is warranted, largely because I think the Chinese government would be really tempted to persuade Huawei to incorporate backdoors in their systems to allow for data collection and surveillance. Now, I probably would have shrugged that off a few years ago just because the amount of useless information you would be pulling in would be enormous. So the signal to noise ratio would be all out of whack. You would have way too much noise and too little signal. But now we're in the era of big data analysis, and I think it's harder to dismiss those concerns out of hand because we're getting better at finding the signal even in massive amounts of noise thanks to stuff like machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I'm a little more cautious now. And then we get to the conspiracy theories. Now, I am not certain how these things get started. Uh, for some people, it may just be a joke. Uh, this idea that you know the wireless technology was creating health issues with more recent incidents specifically attempting to link 5G technology with the spread of coronavirus. Uh, there's long been a belief among some people that radio waves are somehow affecting them adversely, even though there's not really any real scientific evidence to show a means for how that would happen. Uh, radio transmissions don't have the same sort of, of impact on us that high-energy electromagnetic radiation can have, you know, stuff like in the X-ray and gamma-ray range. That stuff can have a real effect on us. Radio waves have not really been shown to do that. Um, if you were to do double-blind tests with these people, at least the ones I've seen, uh, the, one, the, the studies I've read that have used double-blind tests don't really show any proof that anything is really happening. A double-blind, by the way, is a test in which neither the subject of the test or the person administering the test knows if that subject is in a control group or not, or under control conditions or not. Uh, that way, the person who's administering the test can't give any hints or clues or indications to the subject about whether or not the actual thing that's being tested is happening. So in the case of someone who's concerned about electromagnetic radiation, you could design a test where an administrator takes the subject to a room that may or may not have an active radio transmitter of some sort inside that room. And the person who's administering the test would also not know if the antenna were active or if anything was happening in that room. So they wouldn't be able to indicate to the subject, hey, you're going into a control room where nothing's happening, or you're going into an actual test room. You're going to get bombarded by radio waves. 
neither party would know, and it would only be after the test was fully run and the results were looked at that you would be able to see, was there any connection between when we were running a control and when we were running an actual test and the supposed reactions from the subject. As far as I've seen, none of that has really paid off. Like It just doesn't show that there's any actual causal uh, link between radio waves and a person's uh, alleged symptoms or, or reactions to it. Getting back to the conspiracies, it's possible that some people conflated 5G as being related to coronavirus because the reports were that the earliest cases of coronavirus originated out of China, and thus those people made some big leaps beyond logic that coronavirus emerged from China, Chinese companies are involved with creating 5G technology, therefore 5G technology somehow has something to do with transmitting a virus. But I don't think I need to spend any real time at all pointing out how none of that really makes any sense. There's no linking there. Uh, we've seen this escalate in some places, including incidents of people setting fire to masts, that is the poles that hold up network equipment. We saw that happen several times in the UK. Whether those fires were started by people who genuinely believe that 5G is somehow transmitting a virus, which again is not possible, or that the 5G antennas pose some other sort of health hazard, or maybe they're just trying to stir up trouble, I can't say. But I can say that physical damage isn't something easy to defend when it comes to this sort of thing. Maybe some of this links back to technologies that are just so complex and so sophisticated that they are beyond the understanding of the average person. I mean, there's a famous saying, I believe it was Arthur C. Clarke, who said that any technology that's sufficiently sophisticated enough will be indistinguishable from magic. The idea being that if it's so complicated that you cannot understand how it works, you might as well be told it's magic, it will make no difference to you because you won't be able to understand it either way. And the fact is that people want explanations. They want to be able to understand why things are happening. And in the, the lack of an explanation, they might leap to conclusions that are not really supportable, but they might be comforting because they offer up an explanation for the thing that is happening in the world around them. Um, it's a lot easier to take a fake explanation and, and accept that than to try and understand the real explanations in some cases. Uh, you have to do fewer Fourier transforms if you're talking about fake science, for example. So that kind of wraps up what 5G is and what it isn't. And it is really confusing. It's, a, it's easy to understand why people would get kind of hung up on all this. Uh, part of it because the marketing messages have been really pushing hard on a narrative that I don't think is really going to play out in the real world, at least not the way the marketing makes it seem. Um, on the flip side, we have people who are either just desperately looking for answers or are looking to stir up trouble and thus are spreading fake stories. So I get it, uh, but I wanted to try and clear things up as best I could. I hope this was helpful. If you have suggestions for future topics on Tech Stuff, whether it's a specific technology, a company, a trend in tech, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. 
Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.